Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Mr. Simon Fleming, a trainee trauma and orthopedic surgeon from the United Kingdom with a national and growing international reputation for his campaigning work driving standards in medical education and social behavior. Simon graduated from St. Bartholomew and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry, the two hospitals combined a number of years ago. St. Bartholomew, or Barts as it's known, is is a very famous old place. Uh, He then practiced as an orthopedic surgeon in Bundaberg Base Hospital in Queensland, Australia, and has been an orthopedic trainee at several UK hospitals. And he's now back in Australia in Sydney doing a fellowship. But all the while, he's been advocating for excellence in surgical training and mentoring future surgeons, as well as combating bullying and harassment in healthcare. He has spoken widely across the UK and abroad about his award-winning Hammer It Out campaign aimed at tackling bullying and discriminatory behaviours in the health service and aiming to create positive and empowering workplaces, which should lead to improved patient care. Simon's received over 15 awards for his work improving standards in medical education, shining the spotlight on a need for cultural change in healthcare organizations. One that delighted me was seeing that he was the first man to receive honorary membership from the Medical Women's Foundation, uh, Federation, my apologies. Simon tries his best to keep fit in his spare time, but he's also shared that he has a love for great food. I share those rather conflicting interests, um, it seems nowadays that the food seems to win the battle. It's a total delight to have Simon on the podcast with us today. And when we were chatting, a few other thoughts popped into my head that I will try and incorporate. So, uh, Mr. Simon Fleming, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, uh, I actually want to start with uh, July 2005, the terrorist bombings in London. 52 people died and over 700 were injured. And that turned out to be a pivotal day in the genesis of Fleming the Orthopod. Talk to us about that day and what changed for you. Uh, Fleming the Orthopod is a bit like, you know, Plenty the Elder or something. Um, uh, so I was, I was a medical student at the time, um, and I was still in that sort of pluripotent phase where I knew what I wasn't. I knew I, I wasn't a medic. I knew I wasn't a GP. I knew that... Um, to put it in the words of one of my bosses at the time, I had the attention and, and ego of, uh, of, a, of a surgeon. I just wasn't quite sure where I fit in. Um, and we're still kind of looking for, for, that, for that tribe, for that community. And um, we were in the, the, for those who know the old Royal London, there used to be a lecture theatre downstairs. There, there still are now, but this was in the olden days. And we were all sat in the lecture theatre and um, the lecturer didn't turn up. And... Uh, the, the general rule was after 15 minutes, if, if no one turned up, you were sort of free to go. Um, so it kind of got to about, I don't know, 9.15, something like that. And um, we all sort of reached reached for our phones to say, we're all doing a bunk, anyone around, anyone, you know, fancy a trip to the students' union. And um, we noticed our phones weren't working. No one had any mobile signal, which was odd because you actually did get signal down there. Um, so we all thought, well, you know, sod it, let's go. And we went upstairs and, of course, a major incident had been declared. London London had been attacked. And not only had London been attacked, but some of the places had been attacked were, were pretty close to to the Royal London. And of course, the Royal London is, you know, the major trauma centre where HEMS are based there, all that sort of stuff. 
Um, and what was interesting was of the people who had come to the lecture, about a third very kind of calmly said, look, I'm just getting out of here. This is, this is absolute chaos. And it, and it wasn't chaos, but it was, it was a lot. There was a lot going on. Um, about a third kind of went back to the lecture theatre and just looked really, um, really shaken, really not sure of, of things and just wanted to be somewhere and safe and you know underground. And then there were a, a decent number of us who pretty much surprised ourselves by, by kind of rolling our sleeves up. And we went up to um, a man with a, with a clipboard and we said, how can we help? We're medical students. And he said, good, right, come with me. And we all got little, you know, the little plastic pinny kind of whatever's put on us and little stickers put on our chests. And we were phlebotomists and we were porters. We were being told to take this patient here, put a cannula in here. And and in and amongst all the chaos and, and, and noise and people rushing about, there was this oasis of decisiveness and people looking competent and confident. And I kind of leant over to someone and did the whole kind of, who are they? And um, oh, they said, oh, those are the trauma surgeons. Those are those are general and vascular, and um, and that's ortho. And I just I just saw these people who just looked like they knew what they were doing. And people were kind of being wheeled up to them, and then people were screaming and grasping at their limbs and blah 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 blah. And there would be a flurry of kind of pointing and gesticulating. And either they would go to theatre or something would happen. And then ten minutes later, they'd have a plaster on or a dressing on, and they. They wouldn't be screaming and shouting anymore. They 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 looked kind of at peace and fixed, and that was a day where I was like, right. Not only am I a surgeon, but I think there's there's a finite number of specialties for me. And so then I started looking at, at basically vascular plastics and ortho, um, and and it wasn't a particularly long time before I realised that for me it was it was orthopedics that was my that was my specialty. What I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing, kind of professionally that ability to fix things um whether that was people patients the profession it, it's just something that is how my brain is wired and and that, but that day was a pivotal day of just seeing seeing people in their element just being really good at their jobs and sorting people out <laughs> uh i was yeah. like yeah I'd, I'd i'd like to be like that one day yeah i remember a, a similar experience, but just being exposed to up up until the point I did my final surgical attachment, I was convinced I was going to be a, a clinical pharmacologist because one of our the professor of medicine, a guy named Alistair Bellingham, now no longer with us, he was very, very prominent and utterly delightful and was just captivated by his control of and his knowledge of medicines. Mind you, of course, back then there were far fewer than there are now. But boy, when I joined the surgical firm and saw them dealing with acutely ill people, and when the patients woke back up, they were better. And that 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 sense of, you know, a finite end to a problem was very, very satisfying. So I want to, for the benefit of folks listening in, uh, I'm in London, and Simon is way down in New South Wales, in, 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 in Australia, um, I believe. And but he spent time in Queensland, Australia, and I did a mini sabbatical there with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, combining my two professional loves, flying and medicine. You ended up in Bundaberg, north of Brisbane. <laughs> yeah, Tell I us did, yeah. that story, how you got there, because most people 
Well, many people, I don't want to be presumptuous, many people would have no idea where Bundaberg is. Um, uh, but tell us about it and tell us about what you saw about how training and practice uh, are in the Antipodes compared to here in Britain. So I did my, my foundation jobs in the Midlands and, and they were what they were. Much like today, it was a great deal of service provision with intermittent flurries of of training and inspiration, but I was like, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And then I got onto core core surgical training, which I did in Portsmouth. Um, and I should add that now the, the the unit there is is absolutely superlative and it is not set up in the way that it was, you know, when I was there. But when I was there, there was a great deal of time as a core surgical training, again, spent on the wards. And, and so after four years of doctoring, I was a bit like, is this really it? Shouldn't I be doing more surgery? Shouldn't I at least know, know, know some surgery? Shouldn't, you know, you have to be revising for the MRCS and you find that more and more of your knowledge is coming from books and less and less of it's coming from the stuff that's fun, the fun bits of surgery, which is, you know, being in theatres and being in busy clinics. Um, and so it got to the end of, of my time at a core surgical trainee and I, I decided I wanted to take some time to myself to, to do the things I loved. And one of the things I'd learned from medical school that I loved was, was education, was teaching and mentoring and supporting people to be, to be better. Um, so I took on a job as a clinical teaching fellow at Barton London. I went back to my alma mater and was teaching anatomy, being a PBL tutor, doing all kinds of stuff. Tell, and, tell our listeners what a, what a PDL tutor is. So, so PBL is problem-based learning and it is a formalized way of using cases to in small group tutorials to to impart knowledge so rather than you know locking people in a lecture room and talking at them it is you know a story and then the group discuss it tell us about the patient tell us about um you know what what would you want to know more about how does that work and, and of course as the group talk and discuss they start to identify the gaps in their knowledge so i i, I filled my year teaching and, and i loved it but what I found, certainly in the latter half of the year, was I started to miss surgery. And I was like, you know what? I need to get back to surgery. Um, but also I I could just really do with a break. Um, so I looked into um, working in Australia, as many people do. And I called around and I got some pretty amazing job offers. And I didn't want to come out to Australia and just work in sunnier versions of where I'd worked for the previous five, six years. I wanted a I, but A, I wanted an adventure, and B, I wanted something different. Um, and then I heard about this place called Bundaberg. And the hospital is is a really interesting creature because it's simultaneously a small, smallish rural hospital or semi-rural hospital, while simultaneously being what's termed a base hospital. In other words, loads and loads and loads of even smaller communities refer into it and send patients into it. So it's, it's simultaneously small and quite busy. We saw gunshot wounds there and farming injuries and all kinds of stuff because patients would come to bigger centers for for pit stops, I guess, for us to do what we could or, as, as you mentioned, you know, call the flying doctors or whoever. And um, it was this wonderful year where I I discovered I really did miss orthopedics. I was able to, you know, fill my fill my boots with, with operating and clinics and, and all the bits that I loved. Um, uh, and it allowed me to kind of reflect on what I wanted, which was I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. 
Um, it reconfirmed what I suspected, which is I, I love small towns, but I kind of need to be in a bigger town. I need to be busy and I need to be moving forward always. And so Bundaberg was a perfect example of that. So actually I, I created the template for what would then become the rest of my life, which is working quite hard at work because it is important and core to everything I am that I'm credible within my community. You, you, can't, you can't try to change a community where you have no credibility because then it's too easy for the naysayers to go, well, you know, those who can do, those who can't teach or those who can do, those who can't go into politics or whatever. But, but what I found actually brought me a huge amount of joy was spending quite a lot of the time I had spare and often creating spare time um, doing other things that brought me joy. So in Bundaberg, that was that was medical education and, and this radio show. I had to make a decision whether to stay out there or come home. And at the time, my my dad was a bit sick and my, my partner got a, a training number back home. And so it felt like a good time to come back again. Well, it's probably going to be 42 here in London and it'll be Fahrenheit. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I asked you about the differences between the two. I, I I spent time, as I said, in Australia, and then I moved to, I trained in the UK and moved to the United States. And I have to say, whilst one may have seen certain things that one didn't see in, in, in England, I'd never seen a case of Lyme disease, um, for instance, at, at that point. I, I actually find, and I've been privileged to operate and teach all over the world, I actually find that there are far more similarities than dissimilarities. People are people. And it's it's humbling, actually, uh, to go other places. And everywhere I've gone, I find that I learn much more than I'm able to teach. So yeah, I, I, it's interesting. So obviously, there was there's there's disease based differences, which is what it is, you know, um, uh, because you know certainly for Bundaberg, I was in a rural population, so. I was treating people who'd been treated by the local vet. I was treating people who hadn't wanted to, who delayed presentation because they couldn't miss, you know, the harvest or the lambing season. I was treating gunshot wounds because there were a load of farmers with guns. Uh, But actually the the interesting thing with Australia is um, certain facets of their health service, both at a systems level and a cultural level are miles miles ahead of us in the United Kingdom and certain facets are, you know, 10 to 15 years behind. You know, if you look at my experiences in, in Australia now, um, it does feel a lot like the UK of, of 10 or 15 years ago. Sure, people are grumbling. Sure, there's issues. But every, everywhere I'm working is reasonably well staffed. Everywhere I'm working, people are reasonably well paid and willing to go the extra mile for their for their work, for their job. It is one of those things where where bits of this country just feel like I could I could be in London right now, and other bits are very very foreign in in one way or another. Which of course is the whole point of fellowship is exposing yourself to different ways of doing things and thinking about things is is part of the joy. Yeah, very much so. Well, I'd like to jump into some of your political activities and what took you into that. Let's talk first about your interest in training excellence. You serve as vice chair of the Academy of Medical Royal College's trainee doctors group and are associate editor of the medical education and the clinical teacher. Can you explain what got you into those activities? You're clearly a very driven individual. 
what inspired you and what changes do you want to see and what have you already i mean i think what happens is you if you try to effect change and most of us are brought up to believe especially in britain there's something about the the british character and personality that one shouldn't rock the boat and you know keep keep your head down keep quiet and then you you something pushes one and you effect change and my goodness it feels good so i wasn't raised that way that's what's fascinating so my my dad wasn't isn't wasn't because he's passed um british dad was a dad was a, a holocaust survivor who escaped the nazis emigrated to australia did his medical training in australia and then uh, went to Israel, served in the military there in the sixties, and then and then moved to the UK. But but his his childhood very much framed his worldview, which was that it is. And obviously, this comes from a slightly different lens because he was of a generation. But but his worldview was very much that it is the duty and responsibility of those with power to use it to protect, modify, act on behalf of those without. We now know that's a little bit paternalistic like I said but but the principles are the same so I was kind of raised to rock the boat I was raised to ask why uh, for which I feel never-ending pity for my teachers at school um uh but so I I am um, I wanted to get involved in orthopedic politics and orthopedics education in particular pretty much from the, the word go I got involved in teaching at medical school I found that I am um, was motivated to revise if I knew I was going to be asked questions about it when I was teaching it. So it motivated me to read if I knew I was teaching, you know, first years how to take a blood pressure or whatever. I would then have to go in and read up on how and why and systolic and diastolic and all that sort of stuff and pulse pressures and all the rest. Um, and so it motivated me to learn. Um, but also, undeniably, I got satisfaction from seeing them thrive and grow and, and be better than I was um, and, and pass their exams. And so I, I got my orthopedic training number and I, um, I joined BOTA, the British Orthopedic Trainee Association, which again, for those who don't know, there's two main organizations in the UK that represent trainee surgeons, the association of surgeons in training who represent all surgical trainees, except orthopedic surgeons. For that, there is BOTA. I went to my first BOTA AGM, and took a deep breath and stood for education rep. And everyone said, oh, that's a long shot, mate. And I, I got it because I spoke passionately, I guess. And, and the room felt like I maybe could do some good work. And then I became vice president of the organization and then president of the organization. And one of the privileges of being, being president of, of the British Orthopedic Trainee Association is you sit on the academy of Medical Royal College's trainee doctor group, where all the presidents of all the trainee doctor groups sit. And, and I joined that group uh, as president of BOTA. And then I was encouraged to stand to be the, the vice chair. Uh, and, and I did. And it meant that I was able to deal with issues on, primarily my focus was kind of training, culture, and well-being. That, that was kind of my wheelhouse. And that, that continued, I was in that role for three and a half, nearly four years because I was in that post during the pandemic. So myself and the chair of the organization basically were the ones who were in a lot of rooms advocating for trainees around 
selection, appraisal, exams, all, all the th- training, <laughs> all the things that sort of went a bit, you know, down the pan during during the pandemic. Our job was to try as best we could to make things as as best we can, and and it's this. It's kind of the same with with the um, editorships with the journals. So my main remit with the journals is is social media, and it was because I sort of stuck my oar in and said part of making medical education academically credible is being present on social media. You know, if you're not out there saying, look, this is this is the best evidence, this is the best science we have, the only people who are out there are often just the loudest people talking in kind of clickbaity buzzwords. And actually the only way to counter that is for credible, legitimate organizations to be there going, well, that's not entirely true. And so I kind of was made an associate editor for for social media within within medical education and the clinical teacher, which are two of the kind of highest impact factor meta journals out there. Well, I want to come, we're going to come back to social media in, in a bit, Simon, but um, I'll just throw out there that I try to affect certain changes through the uh, instrument of uh, professional medical societies. And I very often found it horrifically slow moving. Oh yeah, it's tectonic. Oh, truly tectonic, and that it's sometimes it's much better to ask for forgiveness than permission. But we're going to come back to that. I do want to talk a little bit about one of your media exposures, a TED talk that you gave on bullying that I watched. Tell our listeners a little bit about the work you do aiming to tackle bullying and discriminatory behaviours in healthcare. So um, there's this phenomenon called moral injury, uh, whereby you act in a way that goes against your core values uh you know so we saw it a lot in again in the pandemic people people not being able to treat patients in the way that they wanted to or felt they needed to and so they felt guilt and shame and anger and so when when i was vice president of bota one of the conversations we were having was that we would sit in rooms with you know the the gmc or the bma or whoever and we would be asked well you say that all orthopedic trainees want X or feel like this, all of them. And of course, at the time we would go, well, yes, all of them, because we have regional reps and and I'm a duly elected democratic leader of people. And actually we were like, oh, I I think that might be Tosh. So uh, uh, again, at the time, the only real data set we had out there was the GMC survey, which for those who don't know, um, isn't mandatory, but in most regions you fail your year if you don't fill it out. And more importantly, isn't anonymous. If you want to raise concerns about your training or, or things you're going through, the first thing that you lose is your anonymity. And often the first thing that happens is your concerns are put in front of the people immediately above you in your training. Often they're the ones who are the problem. So it wasn't a great, isn't a great system for affecting actual change. So we did something that at the time had never been done before. Um, uh, called the Bota Census, where we asked a load of questions. And um, I said, look, I'd really like to ask about culture. And everyone kind of looked at me because they knew I wanted to run for president the next year. And there's no succession planning, like you stand on your own merits. And everyone was a bit like, yeah. you know, if that's the hill you want to die on, mate, you knock yourself out. And um, so we asked questions around bullying, undermining and harassment. And, and and we gave people an idea of what we were talking about. And the data came back and it was, well, it, it confirmed that it wasn't just me. 
and that actually there were some some things that were really wrong with orthopedic culture. And part of part of our commitment to get people to fill out this census was we put in the introduction, we promise we will act on whatever you tell us about. And so the biggest data set we had, the biggest thing that came out of this census was that there was a culture of bullying, undermining, harassment, and discrimination in orthopedics. Um, and I thought it was going to be my my 12-month or 18-month passion project. And I, I took it on and I committed to trying to begin a change in in orthopedics. I, I read about the Cotter change model. I was like, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise awareness. I'm going to build a guiding coalition. I'm going to do all that sort of stuff. Uh, I made a lot of noise. I brought a lot of allies on board. I started the work. And what su- surprised me, I guess, was people came out of the woodwork, not just from orthopedics, but from all of surgery all around the world and said, oh yeah, we, we have this too, but it, it looks different. It sounds like this. We have these experiences too, this problem too, but it looks like this and sounds like this. By sheer coincidence, and it was a coincidence, um, we were working nearly entirely perfectly in tandem with a, with a similar body of work that was going on in Australia, being led by the Australian College. It was, it was just zeitgeist that it, it meant I was at the center of all of this. Uh, and so I was, I was the only voice in orthopedics talking about this. So you want to talk about tectonic change. I was in the, a, a junior registrar by most definitions telling senior consultants and leaders that they were bullies and harassers, but also so was I, and so were all of us and that we needed to do better. And and then, you know, non-surgeons came out of the woodwork, you know, A&E doctors and pediatricians and hematologists and you name it came out of the woodwork and said, oh, yeah, we have these problems too, but they look even more different, but it's still basically fundamentally the same things. A year, two years went by and it was really starting to gain tr- some traction. I mean, simultaneously, I was getting threatened and picked on in corridors and all the rest, but it was it was the right thing to do. And then TEDx NHS reached out and said, um, we've heard about your work and we feel like this is the kind of thing that needs a, a national, if not global audience. And then I did this TED talk and it was probably another one of those pivotal sliding doors moments where all of a sudden people were emailing me from all over the country and all over the world, you know, they were coming to me and saying, we really need to get you into this room. We really need to hear what you have to say. Um, and it was very much the, the beginning for me. And, and now I've been I've been all over the world. I've I've spoken to all kinds of organizations and leaders and 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 I can sit back and say without any kind of hint of false modesty or arrogance that before that work started in the UK nobody was talking about this. And it's one of the things I will I will be proud of till the day I die is that I I threw that kind of hand grenade in the room and and once those conversations really start you can't you can't really stop them well so another area of activity um uh actually just on your last point reflecting back and thinking about my own career maybe i'm maybe i'm dense maybe i'm just lucky i remember a couple of the surgical teachers who stood out there was one chap who was rather should we say domineering in the on the wards and in theater, but it, he was the nicest human being and he treated us as medical students really, really well. 
<coughs> would have us over to his house for dinner. And it was all about patient care. Bit of a dinosaur, maybe, but I don't know. I, I don't that's, know. That. So that's, that's a perfect example. Um, so number, I number one. I was just going to say I, something. I don't know that I've come across what I would call bullying. I don't think I've Well, I wouldn't bullied. expect you have because you're a straight white bloke of a, of a certain era. And, and, and that's not a criticism. It is just a, a fact. I'm I'm a straight white man as well, and and you know the, the perfect example is is how you described it, and it's it's very often how the the old firm structure is described. And of course, number one, people who look and sound like us rarely experience those behaviours. They do. I have, but it's uncommon. Fine, but of course, in in those less diverse spaces, well, there are no women to be bullied because they're not allowed on the team. And they're not invited for dinner or drinks or to the round of golf. And, and it's not it's not a criticism. And, and conversations around things like privilege and survivorship bias, often people get really defensive and they, they end up in the in the grief cycle, you know, anger, denial, denial, guilt, negotiation. And it's it's just because it's it's hard to accept that the NHS and healthcare in general isn't broken. It's not broken culturally. It was built this way. So that's all fascinating, Simon. There's another area that you've addressed, and um, I want to reference an opinion piece that you wrote entitled Sexual Harassment or Assault, What You Permit, You Promote, in, in which you highlighted the shared responsibility that everyone in the National Health Service has in holding sexual predators accountable. Can you give us a quick summary of this important message for our listeners? I mean, uh, and then I want to get into a nuanced conversation. Yeah, so so again to to put it in context, obviously I, I'm a I'm a straight white man, uh, and so there are many voices out there with lived experience who speak and write about this eloquently. But again, because of my previous work, I was the first person in the UK to talk about this um, uh, a couple of years ago. Now I was asked by a guest editor of the Royal College of Surgeons Bulletin to write a piece about um, sexual assault in surgery. And I, I declined. I was like, I am a, I'm a straight white man. I'm absolutely not the person to be writing this article. And they said, look, Simon, um, full disclosure, we think you're the only person in the UK who will. And it was because up until that point, I'd been one of the only people on record, including in interviews to the BMJ and to the press, saying that this was was a problem in surgery. In August 2021, Sexual Assault in Surgery, A Painful Truth was published, uh, written by myself and my co-author, uh, Rebecca Fisher. Uh, and I think the opening sentence was something like, surgery and surgical training have a problem with sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape. It is an uncomfortable truth, but a truth nonetheless. And again, a bit like the the, the work we'd done with bullying, undermining, and harassment, it sort of opened a Pandora's box. It prompted uh, a bit of a media storm. It prompted the health secretary to summon leaders to explain themselves. And just when it was all starting to die down, a, a very brave human by the name of Philippa Jackson wrote a response to to our article, sharing her experiences of being sexually assaulted at work and of being silenced, of being slut-shamed, of being isolated, and of fundamentally of not being believed. That then caused the creation of uh, the the working party within the college and, and a number of other th things. But I, I remain involved with both that work and, and the wider work in the in the UK and, and globally. And, and 
the piece I was asked to write by the BMJ was was about how it is everyone's responsibility to hold sexual predators to to account or you're complicit. And and the article kind of highlighted that uh, within you know within the UK in general, we reckon that about one in twenty women will have experienced some sort of of either rape or attempted rape between you know by the age of sixteen. Uh, and more than that, we now know that the data in the UK mimics the data of, of other European countries and Australia, which is between a 1% to 2% rate of rape, that is staff-on-staff staff rape, uh, between a 10 to 15% rate of, of sexual assault, though some data suggests higher, and up to a 65 to 70% rate of, of sexual harassment. And my piece kind of called for... Uh, a system uh, that I've been advocating for for years, whereby there is both an opportunity for learning and growth, because for a lot of these behaviours, people do just need to be told, look, we don't tell jokes like that anymore, or that behaviour isn't acceptable anymore. But for some of these other people, they're beyond that conversation. For some of these other people, they are committing crimes. They are they are against both law and, and ethics, morality and, and the profession. And that all of us, all of us, regardless of what your name badge says or what your payslip says or what rank you are, have a responsibility to be part of the change to make our workplace a safer place. Yeah, I'm fully in favour of everything you're saying. I'm a little tad concerned when such dialogues go too far and it, it's, um, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'm trying to frame a question. I'm nervous about asking the question, lest I be perceived as having an opinion that differs. And surely disagreeing is fine. It's being disagreeable that's not fine. So, for instance, this whole thing, I was recently told an organization that I served as in a non-executive capacity, I was told that it was obligatory for me to list my pronouns on my email signature. And I said... Sorry, no, I don't want to do that. Now, pronouns are interesting. And again, I would point out that there are better, more informed people who can discuss this. What I would say is, I think from my perspective, as someone in the advocacy space, um, mandatory pronouns, I think, are actually problematic because you can run the risk of forcing people to out themselves when they don't want to. But um, recently, um, but recently I, I had someone who had a real issue with pronouns and they wanted to say, you know, they were trying to tell me that, you know, he was he and she was she and that's just how it is. And I said, well, uh, how would you like it if I started just calling you a girl's name? And they said, I'm, I'm sorry, what? And they were very kind of, it, it seemed like the only way to kind of get the point across. And I said, yeah, how about if, if I just started calling you a different name, a boy's name, but just not your name? And they said, well, I do, what, what? And I was like, would it, would it annoy you? And they were like, yes. I was like, would it upset you? I'm like, yes. I was like, at some point, would you, it gets so on your nerves that you would lose your rag if I kept referring to you as the wrong gender or the wrong name. They said, yes, I get to dis decide who I am and what I'm called. And it's a sign of disrespect. And you could just see the kind of light bulb moment. And they were like, oh. And I was like, now, now imagine if society tells you or some parts of society tell you that you're wrong or disgusting for that. Now imagine if you feel physically and psychologically unsafe for who you are, for how you want to be referred to and spoken to. So there are some people where 
it is vitally important either that they make their pronouns clear to others. And it is our responsibility to, again, listen and respect that. Uh, personally, I mean, I, I, just to throw my, my hat into the ring here, I think there are certain elements of my life that are frankly nobody's business, but, you know, between my, me and the people I choose to share them with. So as a straight white male, um, you know, how, what, what my sexual preferences are, um, I, and I've, I guess I've used my pronouns just by having my email signature say, Jonathan Sakia, that's my name. You can choose to... Here's know. a question, Jonathan. Have you ever, have you ever at work ever spoken about your wife or children? Yes, I'm sure. So by definition, you've shared within, within a certain amount of reason, you've shared that information with people. And again, it's, it's interesting because I get people going, oh, I don't need to hear about these people's torrid personal lives. And then you ask them if they've ever spoken about their heterosexual life and they go, well, obviously. And of course, that's because that's normalized and that's what they expect. And, and, and I think you're right, though, in that it is absolutely right and good that people have boundaries. But it, yes. is, it is up to you to set them within, within, within the framework of accepting that you live and work in a community of practice. So if one of your boundaries is, you know, fundamentally problematic, that's when conversations need to be had. Yeah, well, that's, that, I guess that's the key point. You know, that's exactly the key point. So I do want to come back to the social media comment um, uh, we talked about earlier. And you, you've you co-authored a paper investigating social media as an educational tool and looked at the hashtag ortho Twitter. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that and what you've referenced, what social media can help one achieve and the work that you've done. Tell us a little bit about ortho Twitter. So, so obviously Twitter at the moment is an interesting space since it was bought by uh, a gentleman who owns an electric car company. Um, but we can use his name. <laughs> I don't but, think we well, but, but, but at the time, the, the paper we, we wrote was, was about identifying that actually how social media, and there's, there's other work by, by people like uh, Johnny Guckian, who's a, an, an academic who works in the same kind of space, some of the same spaces as me, and uh, Ollie Burton and Aqua Asif did a, a systematic review looking at social media. It, it, it's basically about recognizing that actually it's a, a powerful tool for delivering medical education, for building communities of practice, for creating psychological safe spaces, for, for a multitude of things that are extremely powerful within medical and surgical education. And, and the, the paper we wrote was a retrospective search, looking at, at tweets that created that, that contained the hashtag ortho Twitter. Um, and then we basically looked at the content and we looked at the fact that actually about 44, 45% of the stuff that was out there was actually either educational or research in nature. You know, don't get me wrong, some of the stuff was was just chatter, some of it was promotional, but actually nearly nearly half of all the stuff that was out there had some sort of of educational content. And it was it was because one of the big criticisms is that, you know, social media is just a, a big echo chamber and all the rest. But but we know that actually when you look at social media as a tool, 
it's hugely important around uh, accept- acceptability, you know, um, in terms of being this kind of novel, humorous way of sharing information. It allows people to create peer relationships. It's got some really interesting stuff going on around professionalism, which of course is a is a social construct in and of itself, uh, where you kind of talk about privacy, visibility, risk, you know, being anonymous versus not being anonymous. Tons of opportunity for learning, for blended learning, knowledge development, academic support. I have mentees, I have people I've been mentoring for years who I've never met, but I consider close, close friends. And they're, they're people I've met through this orthopedic or educational community on, on social media. So I'd um, like to shift the focus again slightly. Um, you published uh, recently a protocol for a study investigating a var- variation um, in experiences and attainment in surgery between ethnicities of UK medical students and doctors. What, what, what impact do you see that having? What, what did you find in summary? Well, so the, the protocol was obviously a, a research protocol and it, it was born off the back of a number of things. So part of it is we have increasing evidence that the way we assess in, in healthcare, and by that I mean um, examine people, um, is probably flawed. Again, a bit like some of the stuff I said previously, the, the systems currently in place are probably the most valid, most reliable versions of what they are out there but there is increasing evidence that the assessment models we use are discriminatory so uh, a nice example not to do with this paper per se but a nice example is there's been some great work by by ricky ellis and a couple of other people that show that the the surgical exams we have the the mrcs and the the frcs um have differential attainment. That is to say, if you are a single straight white man, you are far more likely to pass those exams than if you are a woman or a person of colour. And if you are a woman and a person of colour, you're you're in an even worse position. So there's an intersectionality to it. There is a, a compounding of those problems. Um, and that includes the electronically marked exams, which means we are we are failing people long before they sit the exam. And so the paper we did, the protocol basically said, we know that minority groups in, in a number of fields, including surgery, seem to have differential attainment, do have differential attainment. And so one of the barriers to having a, a diverse or a more diverse workforce is, of course, that some of these hurdles for people getting into the workforce, exams, seem to be discriminatory. Um, and so to understand it better, we came up with a study that aimed to basically describe and compare the, the factors that look at that. And so we just came up with a, a protocol for a nationwide cross-sectional study. Uh, where we were going to look at um, the experiences and perceptions of people on surgical placements, as well as their academic academic uh, attainment data, and the analysis is ongoing. So it's all kind of um, in in the pipeline, but but we have we have certain kind of hypotheses, uh, as you might imagine, of, of what we what we expect it to show. 
So sort of trying to tie this all together, experiences as past president of BOTA, the Orthopedic Training Association, co-chair for the International Conference in Residency Education, vice chair of the Academy Trainee Doctors Group, PhD candidate in medical education at Barts uh, and the London. All these roles, all your experiences, if you could give me like some bullet points on how you want to influence the next generation of healthcare professionals. I always felt that my biggest, my biggest focus was that the people I trained would be better doctors than me, better scientists, better presenters, better tech, uh, clinical surgeons, um, better colleagues, just better. So what's your sort of bullet point approach to this? It's, it's an important question, but it's sort of big one because the, it, it's, it's basically like, what do you want your legacy to be? And I guess I hope that my legacy, when whenever I retire or pass and go to the big MDT in the sky, is is I hope that I leave behind a better culture. And it, and it's not meant to be grandiose when I say you know like a better world, but it is fundamentally about building a culture that will mean that all of the things you described are easier to achieve. Um, you know, the, the cliche is, is um, culture each strategy for breakfast, and, and it's very true. And the Maya Angelou quote is, uh, do the best you can till you know better, and once you know better, do better. So my legacy is hopefully more and more people will know better, so more and more people will be able to do better. And so everything you described, better colleagues, better doctors, better surgeons, better patient care, better outcomes, a better health service, a better everything, actually, more and more, we are showing, proving that one of the ways you achieve that, one of the only ways you can achieve that in any big, meaningful way is through building a better culture. And so if, if my legacy is one thing, it's, it's, it's simple but significant. And it is, I hope, to be a very small part of building a better culture in healthcare because it will just be better, fairer, more equitable. It will create a sense of belonging for everyone. And I, I don't think it's that big an ask. Well, I guess the, the question I always like to close with, if a magical genie were to grant you three wishes... Um, Jermaine to healthcare, what would those three wishes be? I would want to be able to completely restructure the way we select into medical school. Uh, I think I think when you look at how we select into medical school, I think we've slowly had a bit of mission drift. And I don't know if we're selecting in the right way or the right people. And I say that for a variety of reasons. Um, to do with the fact that most of the time it tends to be about your grades, how much you've missed of your sixth form because you've been doing projects and papers, and then a 15 to 20 minute interview. I, I just don't think that's necessarily a robust system. I think I would, I would wish for um, the means to change the way we, we do assessment in medical education think there's a real issue there and then I guess 
the final wish to try and encapsulate all the all the things that really really matter to me and keep me awake at night and fill my waking hours as well as my sleeping hours i would wish for more people to have a growth mindset and be slightly more open to the idea that though change is loss and change is scary if we get it right change can also be a good thing and if i could have those three wishes um i think we would see a more diverse more inclusive respectful safer culture in healthcare and i think our patients and our colleagues would thank us for it well thank you very much for those summaries and that summary and my guess is that uh, rather than waiting for the wishes to be granted you're going to go out there and do your damnedest to to achieve it but i'm afraid that's all we've got time for today i'd like to thank uh, mr simon fleming for being with us here on the EMJ podcast and frankly for all you're doing, not just to treat patients with uh, bony problems, but for trying to make the world a better place. Real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you very much for having me. So folks, please uh, check out the archives, subscribe so you never miss an episode, like us on social media and tell your friends to listen in. And please join us next week for another fascinating episode. But until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.